Hi everyone, and welcome to another episode of Riskologists. This podcast is proudly brought to you by Optimize and hosted by me, Andy Haslam. This season, we'll be speaking with the key decision makers who reap the benefits and gain the most value from effective risk management. We'll be exploring their perceptions, interactions, and experiences, as well as understanding what they personally have found to be the most rewarding and beneficial aspects that the discipline has to offer. We hope these conversations provoke thought and discussion amongst both risk and non-risk professionals to lift the lid on how its effective delivery can add real value to the roles of the beneficiaries. So without further ado, let's get into it. Well, hi, everyone, and welcome to another episode of Riskologists. I'm your host, Andy Haslam, and today uh, I'm delighted to be joined by Scott McCauley. Scott, welcome to Riskologists. Thank you for having me. No, it's a pleasure. Um, so how's your podcast game? We always ask this to everybody. Uh, have you done anything like this before? Do you, do you listen to any in particular? I, I do listen to podcasts, but uh, no, I've, I've never had the pleasure of participating, so I'm looking forward to it. Excellent, excellent. So we usually like to start the podcast with a bit of a journey to date for you. So a bit of a timeline of your career, where it all started, and maybe a bit of a journey of what's got you to the recording today. So fire away. Sure. So I've uh, I've got over 20 years of senior leadership experience in high hazard environments, including submarine service and the civil nuclear industry. Uh, during this time, I've led multiple business con- uh, changes and uh, in different contexts, including turnarounds, reinvention or change of purpose and closure missions. I've also led multiple leadership for the management of safety peer reviews, during which I took a small team into a business unit, whether that be in the UK or abroad. And we look at how the, the leadership practices processes uh, affect the safety of the organization. And we offer solutions, not just criticism, which is always good. As part of that, I've done extensive research into uh, accidents and incidents from across the world, multiple different industries uh, to develop themes to help me really add value to those businesses when I, when I conduct the peer review. Awesome. Um, as everyone can probably already tell from the title of the episode, uh, today we're going to discuss risk and leadership in high hazard environments. Um, I think given your previous experience, which you've already just mentioned then, uh, we can't ask for a better person to dive into this topic with. But from your perspective, are there any of the reasons why you've chose this topic in particular today? Yeah, I think it's um, because a, a reflection on mistakes I've made in my, my previous uh, careers, you know, so when I was going through these these incident reports and also the things that I've seen in other places, uh, I realized that I'd behaved in many of the same ways. And uh, I was keen to to share the uh, the error of my ways and also the things that I've seen from from across the, the different industries. Awesome. Well, thanks again, Scott, for being part of this today. So before we get stuck into the topic, really, in uh, a little bit more detail, as uh, after all, this is a risk management podcast. Uh, what and how has your experience been with risk management over your career? And what sort of relationship have you had with it? So it's it's varied over time. Um, to be honest, I didn't see much point in it in my early career, which is probably not a, a great thing to to admit to. But it, it seemed quite nebulous. It seemed uh, sort of almost disjointed from my day to day. But as, as I grew to understand it more, and I realized it wasn't just the uh, by the book process, it was much, much broader than that. I saw much more use in it. And actually, I realized that a lot of what I was doing already was part of that risk management process, but it wasn't it wasn't structured, it wasn't joined up. It was just doing it because it felt like the right thing to do. So that realization led me to invest much more of my time and effort into risk management holistically, um, as opposed to, you know, turning up with a risk practitioner once a month and discussing very high level risks that may or may not come uh, come to fruition. Mm -hmm. So getting into the topic, firstly, I think it's great for us to be considering risk and leadership in the same breath. I mean, I won't 
speak for the risk community as a whole, but I'm sure uh, some uh, will empathize when I say that the terms are, are often mutually exclusive. Uh, in your experience, have risk and leadership always gone hand in hand? Um, has risk often been at the forefront of leadership meetings due to the nature of the environment you work in, or does it still often make its way down the itinerary and list of priorities? Yeah, I, I would I would say no, it, it hasn't always been at the forefront. And I think that partly that was by my understanding of it um, and, and other leaders' understanding of what risk actually is uh, and the way that it was brought into the businesses that I've worked with. Um, so I've seen it done very well where it's formed the core of uh, the, the safety and operations management system that's, that's run. Uh, and, and it has offshoots and links to everything uh, that, that is executed. But equally, I've said it, as I said before, that it's, it becomes a monthly meeting with the risk practitioner where you just go down the list and say, you know, is this still okay? Is, that, is this not okay? And then on top of that, you know, a plan for a plan for addressing it as opposed to actually a meaningful action plan to, to mitigate the risk. So yeah, and, and everything in between, really. Mm -hmm. um, how do you feel well-executed risk management can help leadership teams and particularly in high hazard environments? And in your experience, can it be effective in making strategic business decisions? I, I think it, it not just strategic. I think if you start at the operational level and then you move through the tactical and into strategic, it has, it has value at multiple levels. So you won't necessarily have everything that's on your operational risk register flowing up to your, uh, your strategic. Mm -hmm. But if you're looking at your strategic risk register and you see that multiple business units have the same risks, does that then become a corporate issue? So it, not only is it useful in, in showing you where you need to focus your attention, but it's also useful in, in cascading or elevating the, the issues and or the risk, should I say, and that will, uh, that will enable you to make the, the decisions at, at all three levels of the business. Have you found that that's actually the case then with most of the businesses you've worked with? Or is that something that's just it developed over time and had to be brought in? Um, I, I think most of them, it's, it's not as well developed as, as I just explained. I have seen it done incredibly well, mm -hmm. um, where you do have that clear flow of information and line of sight. Um, I think, in my experience, where it normally starts is that if somebody wants to set up that flow, what you end up with is everything in the operational and tactical flowing up to the strategic, and they just get swamped. Mm -hmm. um, so having that discipline to be able to say, well, okay, that doesn't sit with the strategic risk because you know it, it needs to be dealt with lower down in the organization. And equally, if something genuinely is a strategic risk and can't be resolved at the operational or tactical level, having that discipline to make sure that they're sitting at the right level within the organization is vital, I think. Mm, excellent. Uh, we know that risk is not always implemented as it should be for whatever reason. So can you give us some examples of where you found it may not have added the intended value and, and what caused that and how you've managed to overcome it? I think the the main problem was that I've seen is around asking the wrong questions. And so you end up with either a very, very small risk register or you end up with something that's huge and unmanageable. Um, and going back to what I said about the flow through your organization, that can help mitigate that, that issue. Um, I think the other aspect has been, even when you do have a risk register, which is, is fit for purpose, the, the actions that are placed to mitigate the risks aren't always meaningful. And even when they have been implemented, when you look at the effectiveness of that implementation, it's, you know, it, it hasn't uh, achieved the desired effect. Mm. Um, and so you can take you can take comfort for something that you assume has been put in place, get rid of the risk, it's been mitigated, that's fantastic. 
and then find yourself being bitten by it later on because mm -hmm. actually the effectiveness of your action has hasn't met the intent mm -hmm. is there anything that you've found in in best ways to try and get the better levels of mitigation out of out of the teams that have worked with you yeah, I mean, it's about being realistic. As I, as I said, you know, having a plan for a plan and a promissory statement to resolve the issue at some point in the future, having the discipline to be able to say, well, actually, you know, that isn't going to to mitigate the risk. We we need to be realistic about this, um, and and not not being inclined to keep knocking things off as quickly as possible. You know, mm -hmm. we we need the quality of resolution as opposed to the the quantity of items knocked off, mm -hmm. um, and so being able to say that we haven't yet met the criteria for removing that risk um you know you can feel sometimes under pressure because your risk register is huge and you know you can say they're all valid risks um and you want to knock the numbers down but actually it shouldn't be a, a numbers game it should be a quality game no, definitely very good advice i think for that and uh, something that everyone should really take away from us with that i think um i know in some of our conversations leading up to today we touched on something you noted as the seven pillars um could you run through what these are for our listeners uh you'll obviously do a much better job at it than i can um and how they can be utilized uh, alongside formal risk management techniques such as iso 31000 uh, in order to really bolster an organization's risk attitude and maturity yeah sure i mean one thing i would say is that you know this works for me it may not work for other people i'll give you a bit of background of where it came from so um I was running a large operating unit and I had a meeting with uh, one of my internal regulators and he told me about a, a story about a, a Nimrod aircraft that was lost in Afghanistan. Mm -hmm. um, unfortunately, it, all on board perished as a result of a fire followed by an explosion. Uh, and I'd read the, the summary reports previously and if I'm honest, I didn't get much out of them. But when he spoke to me, he, he gave me a load of things that I hadn't seen in the, those summaries. So that prompted me to go away and look at the, the full report uh, a number of hundreds of pages later. I'd gone through a bit of a journey of thinking of these people. So, so what it did was it didn't just focus on the, the, the day of the incident. What mm -hmm. it did was it focused on all of the things that led up to it over numerous years and the, the leadership and management aspects that directly contributed to that incident. Um, and so when I when I was reading through it, it's quite a scathing report actually. It names people, um, yeah. which was a bit terrifying for me because I initially thought, well, yeah, how could these people make so many mistakes? You know, mm -hmm. this is ridiculous. And then it dawned on me, I've done that, and I've done that as well, and I've behaved in many of the same ways that these people had behaved, these leaders mm -hmm. had behaved at numerous points in in my my career, and that terrified me really. And mm -hmm. so I thought, oh, what am I going to do? Uh, yeah. You know, how am I going to make sure I don't end up in one of these reports? And so I decided to to verify my thoughts, and I read numerous other ones: Herald of Free Enterprise, uh, King's Cross, you know, the the, the big ones, um, loss of space shuttles, and and, uh, yeah. and across the entire, uh, you know, numerous um, you know sectors, including nuclear. Mm -hmm. And the the common themes that I came out with, I distilled down into safety and security, productivity, responsible business management, people communications, effective risk management, uh, and professionalism and rigor. And the idea behind that was to get those high level topics and then develop, as opposed to jumping straight to key performance indicators, mm -hmm. I would develop under safety, for instance, I would develop what the key performance question was I wanted an answer to. So mm -hmm. I would look at safety and I'd say, well, what do I want to know about safety? 
well, I want to know my people are trained correctly. I want to know that we're maintaining our equipment properly. I want to know that we've provided all of the things that we need to enable safe operation. I want to know that my management processes are supporting safe operation. I could go on. Mm-hmm. And each of those questions or statements that I wanted to prove would then generate an indicator. And not all of those indicators would sit at my level. You know, they yeah. would cascade down into the organization. And I would then provide the, the oversight. So when I talk about effective risk management, that's that's things like, you know, when you are making decisions um, at you know, my level or above, do you understand what the unintended consequences could be further down into the organization? Mm-hmm. So one one of the big ones from the uh, the accident investigations was cost cutting. Mm-hmm. And so when you're in an, in an annually funded business, if you make a, a cost cut at the start of the year, let's say you're going to say, I want to cut it by 10%. Well, you haven't actually looked and see, seen if that's possible. You know, is it, is it safely possible to continue to achieve the same level of scope for 10% less money? And what would the impact potentially be? And that's a trap that a lot of people fall into from, from my experience is that 10% haircut, as they call it. And, uh, well, you'll find a way, won't you? As opposed to, I want you to go away and see what you can do, risk assess that business decision, and then come back to me with what you think is achievable. Awesome. Well, thanks for that again, Scott, with that. Um, one thing that has kind of come up with us is, is and you, you briefly mentioned right then about KPIs and, and mm. KPQs uh, from, from your uh, seven pillars method with this. Um, risk KPIs have been considered before, but as all risks are unique in nature, um, it's hard to define a meaningful and generic, you know, KRI, a, K, a key risk indicator. Mm. Um, do you have any thoughts on tackling this? I think it, it's, it's a realization that a KPI isn't necessarily a key performance answer. Mm. So it, it doesn't necessarily give you an absolute it's it's more a feel and if you have a suite of kpis um, because you know the, the meanings in the in the title isn't it? it's an indicator of yeah. not an answer to mm-hmm. um, and once you settle yourself with the fact that it's not that absolute it's much more easy to work your way around a, a handful for instance for a, a given risk and say well okay is it generally trending in the correct way or does it feel based on what we're seeing in that that suite that small suite of indicators that we're actually trending in an adverse direction oh that's great scott thank you um you mentioned earlier about the realization that risk is not always by the book and and, and wooden um yeah. you know you have the procedural or the, the science of it um but there is an art of, of interpretation um from our own experiences though it, it needs to be a bit of both data-driven and experience-led uh, which obviously helps take the art of of distilling the science of it all mm-hmm. um however the difficulty comes with we've found when trying to introduce experience without a bias um yeah. have you found this to be true and if so like have you ever had to tackle the issue and, and how have you gone about that yeah i think the art and the science have to be mutually supporting and i think that you can have a bias toward the process and a bias toward the experience so i think it's you can you can see that from both sides mm. Uh, what I've seen is things like success-based optimism, as they call it, which, well, we've always done it this way before, and therefore it'll always be okay in the future, or uh, target fixation, where you're so focused on one issue that everything else going on around you becomes, you know, blind, you're blind to it. Um, and so being aware that, that that kind of trap exists, both in the process side and in the experience side, I think is absolutely vital. And I think having someone uh, in the room when you're having these conversations that that can say, well, hang on a second, I think we might be you know, drifting into groupthink here, or perhaps you know, your, your experience of this issue isn't quite as as the data would tell us, you know, mm-hmm. and, and just, you know, does it feel right that the data and your experience or how you feel about an issue do they marry up or not? I mean, one of the examples I would give is 
having um, an all green safety dashboard and yet we're still having accidents, mm-hmm. you know? So yeah. how can the two be true? Mm-hmm. Um, either you're not measuring it correctly, you're measuring the wrong things, or you know, the, there is some other form of disconnect, but you can't be green across the board and still be having near misses and incidents. Yeah. I mean, did you have any methods then of, of trying to, for that particular example, having a full green screen and, and issues obviously still arising? Yeah. Was there anything in, in a particular way or any particular methods that you then brought in to try and reduce that or try and you know, stop yeah. that being the problem? Yeah, essentially it was the process that I described before. So when we went through the, um, what do I want to know about safety and how am I going to know? What we found was that the questions we were, or the indicators that we had were relevant for, let's say, process safety, but they weren't relevant for personal safety. Mm-hmm. Um, and so, you know, what I have seen again is, you'll take uh, comfort from an indicator that doesn't answer the, the thing that you're taking credit for. Mm-hmm. So for instance, number of uh, hours since last uh, lost time accident does not tell you that all of your vessels or pipe work and everything else are in good condition. Yeah. You know, and, and you see it quite often where that will be the headline at the, the, the front gate of whatever the company is. Mm-hmm. Um, and decisions will be made, made based upon, well, our safety must be improving. We're a million person hours since the last lost time accident. Okay, but you just had a 12 molar nitric acid pipe fail and drain into a, a bond. Um, mm. It doesn't tell you about environmental safety either. And so it's, it's been very clear on the, the questions and also what your indicators are telling you uh, and not allowing your indicators to lie to you, if that makes sense. No, that's a great, again, another great answer, another great bit of advice, I think, for anybody to take away from this as well. Um, moving on um, again for another part of our conversations leading up to today, you touched on a couple of points that I've, I've found really interesting. Um, you mentioned high scoring risks where it has been deemed to be really expensive to manage and so nothing gets done. Yeah. Um, and likewise, low scoring risks that are seemingly so low impacting that, again, no management is implemented. Uh, so basically the business do, do nothing to manage either. So you know nothing is done at all. Can you suggest why this could be, you know, so for example, if a, if an effective cost benefit analysis was carried out, which demonstrated that investment in mitigation would generate net savings across a risk's impact, you know, why would the decision not be taken? Is there some experience you've had to, that you can elaborate on and in, in also in how you tackle this? It's, uh, I think I'd sum it up with that, you know, you get what you measure. And mm-hmm. so if you're in an environment where uh, we talk about safety uh, as an opening to a meeting and then say anyway what about those financial numbers mm-hmm. which which do we remember because <laughs> the first one was a conversation the next one was a demand yeah um and so seeing that from time to time and and so it depends on the context that you're in so if you're being driven to cut costs or to accelerate production and you look at a high scoring risk that would take the facility or the the site down for a period of time that would significantly impact on operations or the same for financial uh, reasons, then it can be sort of pushed to the back uh, because we can't do it because we can't afford it or we can't do it because we can't afford the downtime. Equally, when you look at the lower scoring risks, they don't meet the threshold because they're so low. Why, why, why would we do them? Mm. And so you end up with neither end of the spectrum being done um, and that, that middle perhaps being done. Uh, so, so yeah, that's my experience of it. In terms of what you can do about it, I think it's that that realization that is your decision. Back to what you said about having a bias when you're when you're trying to make a decision. Are you biased in your decision making about that specific risk, or are you viewing it 
from a purely risk perspective. Mm. Um, I think that's probably a way of doing it. But uh, mm-hmm. if I, I think if I could bottle the solution to that one, I'd be a millionaire. <laughs> no, I think, yeah, it's, it's a very tricky one. And it's, uh, you know, I don't like to say, I don't think anybody's really got the, the answer to, to how that's done, but it's definitely a, a question which I think needs to be asked a lot more, um, you know, with those high impacting risks that don't always get the, the, the time and the money I think that they deserve. So thanks again, Scott, for that. So just wrapping up on the subject now, we, again, we've, we've spoken about ways of trying to better the art of, of using risk management. Um, do you think that in particularly high hazard environments, there are any ways of breaking the usual mandrolic methods, such as everyone sat in an office for, for a two hour risk review and, you know, anything that can really benefit the process? Yeah, I think so. I mean, one of the things that I found quite powerful is um, when you're doing your risk review in, in the stuffy office, as you refer to mm-hmm. Um, getting out into the facility with the team. So taking the, the risk register with you and just saying, right, stand back, don't do the normal royal route and you know, you you smell the fresh paint everywhere. <laughs> no, no, go to the, the places that you everyone knows. Everyone knows the bad bits that you don't show people. Let's go to those places and, and just stand back and look at what you see almost from a distance, you know, 20, 30 feet out and see what you can see. And and it takes a little while for people to to see what's there because often they walk past it every day but if you do that it really opens people's eyes up because the stuff that's on your risk register you focus on because it's it's a known known isn't it mm-hmm. um there's a lot that won't be on there potentially and when you're out there and you can smell uh acids or you know you can hear a steam leak or you can hear ventilation dampers moving or feel the vibration in the floor because of an unbalanced piece of equipment you know you, it really gives you that sense of reality as opposed to just looking at a piece of paper. And, mm-hmm. and I know the examples I've given there are potentially quite minor issues, but you also see the general condition of the facility. You know, are, you, are your eye beams rotting through? You know, is the general feel of the place one of actually, you know, what we really do need to invest in this as opposed to, as I say, the, the pristine environment that you're, you're in an office. Oh, again, another excellent piece of advice. So thank you again for that, Scott. Um, it kind of gets us onto the, towards the end of the podcast really and at this point uh, you know regular listeners will know that we have a uh, a question that we always put to our guests and that is um that you know what piece of advice would you give yourself at the start of your career that you know you've picked up along the way that would have really helped you at that point well, i think that there are many pieces of advice i'd give to myself but i think one of them particularly when you're in a a complex or technical environment you can suffer from something called analysis paralysis where you do so much um, problem solving and trying to refine a solution that you never actually do anything. Mm. And, and I think knowingly setting off without a plan, and I do stress knowingly setting off without a clear plan uh, or a complete plan, should I say, is okay so long as you accept and acknowledge the fact that you're doing it um, and, you, and you keep you know, reminding yourself that this is not a complete plan and it is going to change. Um, because at, you know, at the end of the day, it's rare that a plan faces you know, first contact with the reality. Um, so yeah, I think that would be what I would say to myself. Don't don't strive for perfection before you do anything. Mm-hmm. Just recognize that it is imperfect and that is a risk, mm-hmm. but you can then start to achieve an outcome. Exactly. It's knowing that it's not perfect from the start and, and working yeah. along with it. So no, again, another great bit of advice. Um, so really that lastly just leaves us um, for me to thank you again for your time, uh, both building up to the podcast and obviously for today. Um, and I just wanted to ask if you've got, you know, if you'd like to let the listeners know, of um, anything kind of interesting going on at the moment with yourselves, anything you're currently working on. Um, and if people would like to contact you about anything that we've discussed today on the podcast, how they're best to contact you. 
Yeah, sure. So I'm uh, I'm on LinkedIn, which is the best way to contact me. I'd, I'd welcome uh, any questions or comments or uh, any conversations. Um, in terms of stuff that's going on, I've, I've got a book, uh, which I, I wrote uh, about, it's called Leading to Disaster, uh, Leaders Cause Accidents. So a lot of the things that we've discussed are in there, uh, although significantly more detailed. So yeah, interesting times. Excellent. Well, yeah, everybody look out for the book and, uh, and go get those copies there. But again, thanks very much for that, Scott. And uh, thanks for everyone for listening. We'll catch you all soon. Well, that's it for this week. If you've enjoyed this episode of Riskologists, please make sure to follow Optimize on our social media platforms where you can subscribe to this podcast, be notified of the latest releases and help us broaden our reach to the wider risk community. You can also find the full back catalogue from season one, where we've interviewed some of the discipline's most renowned thought leaders around the industry's most pressing topics. If you'd like to get in touch, either as a future guest or with any subject suggestions you'd like to hear covered, please contact us using the address in the podcast notes below. And please join us next time where we'll be hearing the thoughts of another key decision maker and their experiences with risk management. Until then, thanks for listening and take care.